Welcome to the Keener Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. So here with me today is Alexander Medin. He was certified to teach Ashtanga in uh, 2004 by Vitabi Joyce. He grew up in Norway, um, where I think you're a previous national boxing champion. Is that correct, Alex? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, 1987. And subsequently, <laughs> <laughs> a ballet dancer, and then I I knew that he'd uh, he was he's a legend in Mysore because he built a house in Mysore and learnt the language, the local language there, as well as uh, learning Sanskrit. Um, and now, um, mainly, I think you're back in Norway. Is that right? Um, and in the in the mountains right now. Uh, yeah, now I'm on holiday with my family up in the mountains, but. Um, just a few corrections. I was certified by Guruji in 2003. Uh, okay. and, I, and I did learn some very basic Kannada to get by, but not enough to have a deep uh, philosophical conversation with anybody. But I cert- Sanskrit, I learned very well. And that I can speak fluently. Very humble. <laughs> 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 Welcome, Alex, to the Keenan Yoga podcast. Um, so let's just um, rehash a little bit and rewind it. How did you get into uh, yoga? Well, it was actually a coincidence. I was out with my, uh, you know, eldest son, Benjamin. He was five years at the time. And we were walking. We were actually on the tube in Stockholm. And I met a friend who was going to yoga class. And I thought, oh, that would be interesting to join. So I joined. And after the class, I remember lying in Shavasana and just feeling, wow, this is beautiful. This was just, had an effect on me. I felt peace, centered, a kind of harmony. And I just wanted to learn it further. So I kind of got hold of the book that Lino Mille and John Scott had just put out. So I kind of taught myself the primary series in two weeks from watching the book <laughs> and it started at, from there at the time at the time you were a ballet dancer right is that was that where you were working as professionally yeah I mean I was a ballet dancer but I wasn't any good you know I was like I had a background from boxing so I was a little bit tight in my shoulder and my I was not the most graceful ballet dancer but I was like kind of the wild animal that was kind of typecast and put into kind of various productions, but I was never good enough to make it into the opera or the the great ballet companies. I mean, I did work with Birgit Kohlberg in Sweden and a few other good companies, but that was just, um, you know, uh, luck um, that I was able to get those jobs. But uh, as a ballet dancer, I was, I was actually struggling and always, um, you know, when, when you go to audition and you always turn down and it, it's kind of, Hard, but then you know you find work in as a young artist. You find work in all kinds of way, and sometimes you kick around in a few musicals, or you work in a drag show, whatever it takes just to get money. You know, <laughs> so yeah, I actually did, I did not work in a drag show, but I did audition <laughs> once. <laughs> so I got you, you learned you learned the primary series in two weeks, and then you started teaching quite quite soon after. Well, I didn't really learn that. I mean, I I taught it myself. Taught yourself, book. yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I was, you know, I was uh, flexible. And I remember there was I came to London in '96, and there was like a, a guy called John who'd started a, a, the yoga place or something. It was somewhere in St John's, uh, and and. John Scott was just setting up a Mysore style program there in the morning. And then I used to uh, just come and, and study with him in the morning. Um, well, I didn't know you studied with John. Okay. Yeah, I'm very grateful. Uh, I studied like the first year with John Scott, uh, or say I studied six months with him. And then after I went to 
work as a cook uh, and I lived in Ibiza for four months with a, like a self-proclaimed tantric mystic called Godfrey Devereaux, which was quite oh, an experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Godfrey, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was a fascinating guy. He taught me many good things. And then I went to work for Derek in Greece for four months later. I didn't know you went to uh, oh, yeah, yeah. the practice place, Practi- right? Practice okay. place, yeah. I was, yeah, I was yeah. there in Agios Pavlos. Yeah, and I, was, yeah, I worked there. Oh, yeah, no, I have good memory. I mean, Piad from Sweden, he came there also first year when I was there, you know? And then he, ended, yeah. he and Rada ended up becoming together. No, Pierre but Pierre and I are good friends from that time, yeah. Ah, you have to yeah. give him my regards when you... I will, I will, yeah. I, I haven't I spoken to him in... Right. Yeah, I haven't spoken to him in 10 years, probably. I saw him in Mysore, maybe... 10, 15 years ago, but since that yeah. happened. So I'm very grateful to my early teachers like, you know, John Scott, Godfrey Deverell, Derek Ireland. They kind of put me on the track. Uh, and then I came to Mysore first time in 98. And then I, I thought I knew it all, but I had to learn, <laughs> relearn everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think that's an unusual experience in going to Mysore mm-hmm. for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> well, what what were your first experiences like of Mysore? I mean, it was you know, it seems like late in the day compared to a lot of people going to Mysore, but you were still pretty early on for most people listening to this podcast. Well, I I came first time in '98, and of course, it was different on many levels. Of course, it, it was you know we were uh, on the most important level. It was a much more intimate scene where there were only like maybe 30, 40, 50 people at the time. So you knew most of the people who were there, people hanged out mm. and we have the whole mm. different relationship with uh, Sharat and Guruji because they were, mm. they were much more innocent and naive and easy about their teaching and things mm. weren't as kind of formalized and now it's become like institutionalized, you know? So yeah. On that level, it was very different. Of course, being in India, when I first came, you know, there were hardly any cars in Mysore. There were just two wheelers because that was the standard kind of family vehicles. And it wasn't that much pollution and it was really a beautiful place to be. And um, yeah, also considering the whole kind of boom of Indian materialism, people mm-hmm. were much more open and and friendly and less kind of greedy on the money as India has become in the last... Have you been back recently? Yeah, I was in India just uh, last year. I go every year. And I was in Mysore too for a short visit. Oh, you went? Oh, yeah. Did did you go? um, Did you go and see Sharat? Well, I, I kind of tried to go and see Shadow, but he, he had no interest in seeing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we might come to that later. <laughs> and you said, you said, you said that the uh, the teaching was, was how, how I can't remember how you described it less less formal or less standardised. Was there differences in the teaching in the, in the you know in the way it was presented or the actual structure of the series, or were you allowed a bit more leeway? Uh, well, I I think that you know. If, Guruji was much, I think he was, both him and Sharat, they were kind of finding out what worked and maybe didn't work so well. In the beginning when I came, they took people much quicker through the series. And then they stopped and become much slower. Uh, And it was also when, you know, we would sit around at at kind of in the front porch, so the kind of Guruji's hallways on, on the house. We would just and have what started off like a conference after his wife, Amma, had died. It was very informal, and it was just a chat, and somehow it's just a way to hang out with Guruji because he was sad, and he was lonely. People would just ask him questions about everything related to yoga and life, and it, people would just sit around like friends having a casual easy time and a lot of laughs really later you know things penciled more only you know through serious more more wiring questions on yoga and the whole kind of conference became more formalized and standardized but in the beginning it was just a very kind of relaxed casual manner but there's, of course, you know, much to say about how 
my thought have changed because in the beginning it was very few people and when there is few people you have an intimate connection with your teacher and he kind of knows most of them by name and mm. although you know we really take a long time to learn some of the names but after a while he did and he he had a interest in you know to find out about people more um, now when things has become so big and so popular naturally some of the essential things are lost like that intimate relationship uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's some terrible things to see, I mean, to say about, you know, what happened recently with, you know, Karen Haberman or Karen Rains' mm. accusations of Patabi Joyce. And uh, I mean, I was there practicing in the room with her. and But I, I, I never saw any of that. I mean, I remember on one occasion, she she talking about it and and and. and laughing it off but I just yeah how this how Patabi Joyce has you know uh, been turned into a kind of sexual predator and and violator that is just uh, uh, terribly sad and and shocking and I never knew Patabi Joyce like that Uh, Mm. and I never saw that although I hear some people talking about it, but nobody really took it seriously, uh, shockingly enough. Mm. So, but what I mean about, you know, an intimate relationship uh, of yoga is like there is trust, there is openness, there is surrender. And that uh, I really saw in the early days in Mysore. Uh, Guruji had a way of really observing people from his chair in the corner, you know, even with his eyes shut. (laughs) Sleeping. Yeah, exactly. But no, but he had a way of of, of sensing and feeling people, um, which was quite remarkable, actually. And also seeing people going through the various changes and openings that they had and the effect of the yoga postures had to them on a good level and on sometimes on a negative level because on a good level yoga refines us it opens us and it helps us to understand dissolve and transcend our ego mm. but on a negative level when the yoga doesn't really work we become more arrogant hard rigid you know, mentally stiff and egomaniacs. Um, and, and Do you think that Guruji gave support at that time? Uh, did you feel that you were held in that process a little bit more than just simply here's your asanas? Did you feel that there was some kind of coaxing or, or kind of guidance towards the correct path and uh, rather than the obstacle or falling into the trap of, of getting, you know, which we see often now yeah. is that people, you know, you, there was no extra help. <laughs> well, I, I think that Guruji was very clear and he saw people very well and i can just speak from personal experience Mm, because mm, mm. i came with a bit of a personal agenda i wanted to kind of wrestle out the system out of guruji's hands and i wanted to learn it and kind of master it and uh you know go through the series as quick as i can and i think (laughs) guruji saw that and he he saw that i had a you know big ego and a strong ambition and he kind of just kind of put on the brakes and just kind of, it's almost like, I would say he kind of bullied me in a way for three months or four months. He just like, I don't say this is a good pedag- uh, pedagogical approach yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because obviously it doesn't work for everybody. But if yeah. you consider the way Krishnamacharya, Patabi Joyce, BKS, Ayinga were thought, that was a kind of, tradition that they were uh, a part of unfortunately you were it was a bit of a tough love and if you can handle it great and if you didn't you broke yeah and you know how did that bear itself out well it 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 doesn't like i say it doesn't work for all people Mm -hmm. and 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 it's not healthy and, and and you know the sad thing is when people try to 
act and behave like Grudy themselves, just try to copy his style or his method right, of teaching. Yeah, yeah. But, would, but, I, would you say you would... I, but I just want to finish. Like, But I must say that Grudy's method worked on me. He, I was a kind of arrogant sod coming to Mysore, being a little lost and bewildered. And he just kind of grounded me. And he were able to hold up a mirror and he said, look, take a look at yourself. Use this practice as a method to take a look at yourself. And at that time in my life, that was helpful. And I I learned a lot. Uh, and I was... I actually didn't have any ambition or want to come back to Mysore. As a matter of fact, after three months, I went to Pachambi Joyce and asked to get my money back because I didn't want to stay there. And he just said, no, it's not possible. So I, I had to stay uh, for an extra month. And within that month, like um, uh, a turning point happened. And then I ended up coming back for, you know, almost uh, 20 years. Well, 10 years of, uh, you know, 11 years of his life and then mm. up to recently with Sharad. So I have, you know, I spent 20 years in Mysore seeing the the, the good things and, and, and the sometimes side effects of the practice. And there's, there's a lot to say uh, from that, of, uh, about that, of course. Um, I just yeah. think, just to clarify, how, how we were kind of intrigued at how he's, um, his method played out on a practical level. He wasn't kind of beating you with a stick, was he? What, what was uh, what was the bullying no, that you, you how, no, how did it, that look? It, what was his method? It was just like, well, it was just that whatever I did, it was not good enough. Okay, uh, right. And, and whatever I, whenever I made a comment, or he would laugh and he would ignore me or he would like ridicule me in front of other people. And in a way... Uh, you know, instead of just like feeling sorry for myself or uh, first I kind of got angry at him and thought, what's wrong? But then I realized like he, he was trying to kind of show me something. And uh, mm. that's at least that's why I, I uh, what I, I thought. And I, I feel that the moment I actually were ready to receive his teaching and method in the way I could receive it rather than the way I wanted it. I mean, in the way when he saw I was ready and fit for it, then uh, a subtle change happened. And then from there on, really, uh, it was just a beautiful journey of uh, discovery. Uh, And from seeing a man that I thought was a bit kind of, uh, you know, just hungry for money, greeting, and didn't really care about people, I, I realized he he really cared. Uh, mm. And uh, a year later, when I came back with my sister and our, you know, our brother had just died and under some tragical circumstances, mm. and he was very caring and accommodating and, you know, let me practice and stay for a long time without even paying. So, so I, I have a tremendous depth of, of gratitude towards Guruji as a, as a person for what he gave me, what he taught me, and the, the insights that he opened into the world of yoga for me. But I must also say that, you know, uh, coming to know Guruji well, I also see, so he had many limitations and he, he was filled of ignorance of India on many levels, like we all are. But he mm. was very open about it and he didn't try to play a, a guru. He didn't, he just kind of laughed at the whole thing, really. Uh, and he didn't really, you know, teaching was just something he did because he he loved it. And that's what he knew. I remember I had a friend from uh, the Sanskrit college called Vinayaka, but that came with me to London in 2002 when Guruji was there. And I remember him saying to Vinayaka, like, look at this, this is ridiculous. People show up in like this many numbers. And I never mm. really looked for that, he, he said. So I think Guruji was very humble about the very fact that people became obsessed about this physical form of yoga that he taught. He never tried to, you know, present himself like a, 
a great teacher or anything like that. It was more like accidentally, and he kind of enjoyed playing the part uh, for the rest part of his life. Do you think it changed him having the popularity that he he latterly got? Uh, obviously, I think money and fame—it's impossible. Uh, so, to to a certain extent, it did. But I would say that he remained innocent to the day he died. Uh, that was my experience of him, and I, and I really felt that he had a he had a tremendous love for yoga and Advaita Vedanta philosophy. Actually, I would say more for Advaita Vedanta philosophy. He held Shankaracharya as like his, um, you know, greatest mentor in a way. Mm. Um, and, and then, of course, he loved yoga and that whole commitment to his, you know, understanding of Vedanta or Sanatana Dharma Yoga, whatever we want to call it, I think, yeah, turned him into the to the great person that he was, uh, and he, I think people, you know, he was very simple and very, you know, naive in in, in so many ways. But his low love for yoga and like, uh, you know, the truth of philosophy, the way he saw it, was adamant, and and that just didn't change. And you stayed in Mysore for a long time, right? You lived in Mysore uh, consistently. I mean, you had a house there, right? Well, and I kind of, you know, in, in 98, I lived there. And then, and, and I, in 97, I started a program at SOAS in comparative religion and, 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 and Sanskrit studies, uh, which I did. Uh, and I also did a master's degree in, you know, the Vedic religion and, and Sanskrit studies. And then, that I kind of finished in 2004. And then I, so up to 2004, I would, you know, study in England and whatever holiday and whatever I could leave, I would always be in Mysore. But mm-hmm. after two, 2004, I went to, uh, to Asia. Uh, and then I had a little bit of money that I inherited from my grandfather. And I had a friend in Hong Kong who, you know, urge after I lived there for a year and wanted to go and settle in Mysore to actually pursue a degree in Vedanta at the Sanskrit College. Uh, she kind of persuaded me to 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 buy a house, uh, and then you know, prices were relatively cheap <laughs> compared to uh, mm-hmm. what they are what they are now. So I kind of I bought a house in Mysore uh, in two thousand and five, I think it was two thousand and five, and I had that up till. Yeah, two, three years ago, and I sold it. Right, and I didn't know you could actually own property, or you could then, but maybe well, you well, can't. Well, well, I, I couldn't, but we was together with a friend, really, and and, and, and that's how it worked out. So I was okay. just kind of part investor, really, in, in the house. So I and I forgot, you, you were also teaching in Hong Kong. Yeah, I lived in Hong Kong for many years. Uh, I saw those brilliant photographs of you um, with a suit on doing different postures on, you know, yeah. on the tube. And yeah, yeah, I love those. Yeah, yeah. The ur- must be urban, still around if anyone, everyone can look them up. Yeah, the ur- urban yoga inquiry yeah. into yoga in a kind of, yeah, the busy modern lifestyle. That was just something I did when I moved there to kind of create a bit of a buzz with a photographer. Yeah. Because, yeah, <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> No, they're brilliant. I love them. Um, so, um, what, what about the philosophy? You, you talked a lot about uh, your study of philosophy and how, I mean, for, for people listening and how kind of important or, or kind of fundamental is your study of philosophy to the asana practice or do you, can you do one without the other um, or do they need to go together? What, what do you, can you say anything on that? In short, uh, without philosophy, we become blind. You can never find the deeper aspects of yoga in just practicing asana and, and you know bending and stretching and twisting and turning. Uh, unless, oh, I mean, uh, anybody can, of course, realize the self without uh, the teachings of previous great masters, but it's very difficult. Mm. Uh, and all the great teachings of the, you know, the, the shastras, the sciences from the Indian tradition 
are built on the kind of authority of, of, of the scriptures. And when it comes to, you know, the kind of whole um, Sanskrit tradition, they kind of very much value them. Okay, let, let me not get sidetracked in the whole kind of Sanskrit tradition, but let me focus <laughs> on yoga. Like, let, let's just say, when it comes to yoga, uh, without, yeah. the, the, without the teachings of Patanjali, without, yeah. you know, the guidance of Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita, without some of the, you know, modern texts, you know, recent texts from the 15th century onwards on Hatha Yoga, we, we don't have any clear guidance uh, on how to know how the mind works. You know, the beauty of the Yoga Sutras is it kind of, it gives us a clear definition of kind of how the, you know, mental modification and fluctuations of the mind work. What are the kind of subliminal uh, 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 effects on it? Like, you know, the kleshas, how, what are the defaults, like the antarayas that we are born with? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and how how does this you know physical body in in being trapped in the mind and the problem of, of kind of modern thinking is all we've recognized is the I me and myself and when we get caught up in the I me and the mind uh, according to the yoga tradition of course we eventually go wrong It's and not again, practice of yoga enough. Like um, I always say, that, I mean, the, the yoga is purification, and from doing the asanas, does that not give a, a like a kind of clarity of mind enough, or do you need that? That's no. not enough. You're saying you need to also look at the text and use them as to, well. To, Suki, to, to answer your question more simple and straightforward, asana is not enough. It can never be enough. Right. It would be right. a, to make a mockery of a beautiful tradition that has distilled wisdom of how to experience a centeredness of being. You can experience, you know, clarity of mind, peace of mind, good mm. help you understand the mind, unless you have a grindstone where you meet the mind with. And, and that's kind of why you need philosophy, because that gives you the various perspectives and analyzes of the mind that will help you see the mind more clearly and that will also give you good suggestions and guidance on how to overcome and transcend the mind rather being trapped in the mind and repeating those kind of karmic or samsaric patterns again and again and again. How, do, how does that inform your teaching now then? I mean, you can't just teach asana anymore if you're teaching, you know, kind of from a fundamental philosophy perspective. No, so, um, I mean, obvi obviously I, I teach um, Mysore style or late yeah. classes or yoga gently in whatever way. But, but to me, you know, the real yoga is life. And how do we integrate yoga into life, the day-to-day -day life? And the asana practice that we do is just a tool to uh, better find our place in life and to act with greater clarity and energy uh, in the, the normal things we do in life. I mean, not everybody have the privilege and also being a yoga teacher like I am, but real yoga is life and real yoga is never about the form. Uh, and when you become obsessed with the form, sooner or later, you're going to become very disappointed because, you know, um, it, it's impossible to, to, to find the greater clarity of yoga just in the physical practice. I suppose I've got visions of you kind of reading out the Yoga Sutras in the class as people try and do their Mysore practice. No, I mean, no, no. Do, you, do you actually no, no. kind of integrate the philosophy or, or do you just mention it to people or, or the kind of conversation afterwards or does that actually inform your teaching? In your... Well, 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 first of all, it, it's, it's like the duty of any yoga teacher is to try to go deeper into yoga and to become clear with yoga, with what yoga is. And when we start that journey, we realize how unclear we actually are about yoga and how easily we get caught up in dogmas and concepts that kind of 
rule and the kind of uh, condition are very understanding of it. Uh, and when I teach, I don't, well, sometimes, you know, I, I, well, actually very often I talk about Yoga Sutras or the Bhagavad Gita, things like that. But my real, uh, I, I use the physical practice that I do to try to communicate uh, uh, a method for people to understand yoga. And I think the physical practice that we do is a very good stepping stone to come closer to that unexplainable inner essence, that mystery of being and purity of mind that yoga ultimately is. But you can only come to that to a certain degree from the physical asana approach. You kind of need more light from the outside, from the shastras or from, you know, higher levels of concentration or guided meditation than just, you know, looking at your navel or just trying to mm. press yourself into various forms. is <laughs> not going to give you that purity of mind. That is a kind of fallacy of the tradition that we represent. And yes. a lot, so lot of people... Are- a lot Sorry, of people I, have actually, yeah. A lot of people have actually, uh, yeah, become very disappointed uh, there. But you know, the, the bottom line is like the practice is a beautiful tool. It, it it keeps us well, and it's a kind of mental hygiene that we do in order to kind of tap into a mysterious being within. But in order to go deeper with that and understand that, it takes like serious uh, development of concentration, a serious steadiness and analyzing of the patterns of the mind Mm, and mm. recognizing how easily we get caught up in the trappings of the ego and how our mind is kind of filled with avidya, with ignorance, which is kind of the whole breeding ground for all our further ignorant pattern that we develop so kind of how to root out the ignorant patterns within us and to become clear that's what yoga is and in a way we are just like clinging on dogmas and 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 you know swallowing anything just raw because we want to belong to something or have an identity with something uh that's our starting point but that can also just make us more ignorant uh, after some time knowledge so it has to be a personal obviously, thing it, it has to make you free it has to make you mm, see clearly right. it has to make experience it from within and, and that is yoga you can't kind of uh, force a, a form or a method do you see the asana, the asana as a kind of springboard maybe the, like the yoga asanas because i see many people that I know they would have never in a million years picked up a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, become vegetarian without doing asana. So it, does it, in your mind, kind of act as a, a valid springboard or a way into a deeper appreciation of yoga, you know, on, on a kind of more uh, well, cer- generalized level? Yeah, cer- Certainly. I mean, like, to uh, just from s- personal experience, I mm. started my yeah, physical too. asana practice I had no intention studying the Bhagavad Gita or the deeper spiritual. I just wanted the physical kind of high. And I was like ambitious and had a drive or wanted to kind of uh, wrestle with the postures and the tradition. But after some time, you know, when you learn the practice of surrender, when you learn to let go, when you can develop greater prolonged, you know, experience of, of steadiness and balance of the mind, then you you become more intuitive to to what you know uh, the longing for the soul to be free. You, you you there is the inert longing within us all to be free. And when we trace wisdom and when we are like tracing the source of something truly beautiful, meaningful and delightful within us, we learn after some time to navigate and discriminate. And then we turn away from negative patterns. And then we learn how to develop uh, more constructive patterns. 
I suppose this is a good point to ask you about tradition. Um, it, with the way that you're speaking now, it seems that tradition ultimately kind of um, only, uh, how do you say, constricts us, limits us to like a personal inquiry, or is tradition a very good stabilizing tool? I mean, you've had some ups and downs with the, the Ashtanga tradition over the last few years, right? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, but first of all, I, I am deeply grateful for the Ashtanga tradition. I am deeply grateful mm. for my time with Guruji, for the time with Sharat, and for what the kind of Ashtanga tradition gave me. It kind of, in a way, now, it kind of, it, it raised me and it formed me. It gave me my kind of bread and butter, and I'm, deeply grateful for that, for the whole Ashtanga yoga tradition. But, you know, as I have inquired into the yoga tradition, I also have seen, uh, you know, the the certain, not tragedy, but just the sad um, thing, how mm. the tr tradition itself can make you blind and tr tradition itself can... Uh, you know, make people full of fear, and 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 how do I say it? Uh, stiff and rigid, because they all they see is the tradition. When a tradition is good, I mean, you have a lot of various, you know, uh, you could say dogmatic tradition. The ultimate dogmatic tradition in the India anyway is the Mimamsa tradition because they focus very much on rituals and how to do mm. certain things day in, day out in order to get certain benefits from that. And that in itself, uh, when it's just done blindly, it kind of, uh, or if it's done driven by desires, it kind of easily leads to um, a kind of a continuing of, of seeking of new desires and wanting more and more and more. But a good tradition that uh, kind of comes from a sort of wisdom and, and people who have, uh, you know, experienced the method, that tradition uh, is trying to shape people into blossoming and developing their own, you know, kind of in the individual genuinity. Um, mm. But when it comes comes to her uh, Ashtanga tradition, uh, considering that Patabi Joyce grew out of a very traditional Brahmanic uh, kind of uh, tradition, he his method and the way he was taught by Krishna Macharya. We're, we're quite strict on, yeah. on what I mean, the, the tradition in a way didn't it um, help you at the start you were mentioning the kind of the way that he um, kind of broke you, your ego at the start wasn't, wasn't that kind of part of the whole traditional method uh, of course I mean th that is it was his methodolo methodology of teaching and, and uh, to me that worked well but I, I think that you know the stronger tradition What is good about it is that, you know, if you do the practice with, and it awakens intelligence, it's good. But when it follow without questioning and just like copy uh, somebody else's method without understanding it from themselves, they kind of, they lose the inner essence. Mm. So how do we navigate with tradition to get the best out of it whilst um kind of keeping a freedom of inquiry and rather rather yeah. than becoming kind of, you know, prejudiced and, and blinkered, dogmatic. But, but ultimately, mm. any tradition is a stepping stone right. into, you know, a, a, a greater uh, experience of beingness that can never be deformed, you know, uh, defined in words or, or dogma themselves. But, you know, Every tradition has its limitations and many tradition, they kind of crumble up and die after a few years because they are, uh, you know, pacified or they become nullified by the dogma 
and they lose the inner essence. And I feel like, like I said earlier, I feel deeply grateful for the Ashtanga tradition that I belong to, but I feel like any tradition, I mean, if you look at the, to the history of, uh, of India, the greatness of the kind of, you know, the greatness or ungreatness of the Vedic tradition can be argued, but the, 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 the glory of the Indian philosophies that were kind of presented in the Vedas, they were rejected by the Buddhists and the Jains mm. and the kind of unorthodox system. And, and in that very rejection, they had to redefine themselves in that kind of various, you know, opposition that they felt from the Buddhist and the Jain, the Hindu tradition had to be clearer. And in that kind of new articulation that came about, that's where you see the rise of the whole kind of sutra with a kind of, you know, uh, with the, the Shabdarshana tradition and or the you know the the classical Indian philosophies, and it became more rigid in a, in a kind of no, clarification. No, 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 the other way around. It, 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 the other way around. So, like when right. something had become too rigid, people oppose it, and when they realized that rigidity or was kind of uh, turning a lot of people away, they had to redefine themselves and clarify what they were really about. And that's when you saw the kind of uh, kind of new rise of, of, of Hinduism, really, after the kind of uh, the great, uh, you know, uh, not wars, but uh, the, the kind of all the debates and uh, discussions that they had with the Buddhists and the Jains. They needed to become clear of what they were actually doing. And so then you saw that the tradition itself redefined themselves. Um, if it would have done that, it, it would just kind of, uh, lost itself in dogmas and it would have been a form uh, a method with and the inner essence was lost and I think all uh, traditions should be custodian and caretaker of uh, inner essence that inner essence need to be defined and it need to be uh, one need to remind oneself of what that inner essence is really about it's so easy to hide behind dogmas and, you know, kind of used up old concepts. But if if that inner essence is not touched, and if that inner essence is lost, naturally the tradition will just wear itself out, uh, and it can run on dogmatic principle for a long time. But eventually, it will die because that on a, on that a, on a pragmatic it, level, where where um. Where are you at with your teaching now? Does, how does you how do you like? Are you very traditional, or do you allow more leeway for the individual to find themselves in the in the yoga? I mean, the way that you were taught was very rigid and very kind of traditional, and going through the Ashtanga system. But now, the way you're talking leads me to suggest that maybe your teaching on a practical level has changed within the way that you you show the asanas or allow people with the asanas. How how could you uh, how how would you describe your teaching changing, or has it changed? Well, basically, you know, I think. For any kind of, uh, you know, uh, beginner teacher, in, in you know, when you set up, you just copy what you learned from your previous teachers without mm. questioning. And uh, like, I, I try to just blindly copy what I learned from Guruji and Sharat. And that was just like my method. And I kind of blindly followed that. And I was quite rigid with the kind of, system how it should be taught and the methodology and all of that and after some time of course i realized that hey this doesn't work for everybody this is not a, a very good kind of way to go about it for normal people who need to go to work every day when that yeah. being said i mm. i mean i've been teaching my source style for almost you know 20 years and i very much enjoy teaching in that kind of Mysore environment. But when it comes to just like following the postures blindly and very rigidly, I see that it has a purpose and it, 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 it works out in a good way for people who are patient enough to, to benefit from it. But it can also come with some drawbacks and, 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 and negative side effects, you know, when, when people are older and when people don't, 
learn how to strengthen their muscles and stuff on the side and just keep you know stretching 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 on the muscle obviously it's going to become weak and it's going to injure you rather than than help you mm. so can you give an example of how you modify uh, how you might modify the the sequence i mean just on a practical level well of course there are many ways of modifying the sequence of sometimes you know for people who are very stiff ankles and knees obviously you you let them mm. you know past uh, you know uh, or you know if they can't do marichasana uh, b and d for instance you you let them you be a bit generous and you you let them move on but you know lot, naturally a lot of people you know they encounter some problems in puja pidasana kurmasana things like that but but my method is it's not so much about the form and how to do it perfectly my method is much more use the form to to find out something about yourself what is it that that makes you you know hard and stiff here and i try to follow much more that kind of philosophical approach and help people to turn their awareness inwards and try to feel and 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 appreciate um stiffness and rigidity they feel and that they can really embrace that and then mm-hmm. i feel That's there's an openness for mm. for change but when it comes to just the kind of physical rigidity of like for following a certain method i i feel that the the practice um works great wonder who people are you know patient enough to do it but obviously you know if you have people coming who are you know late in their late 40s 50s and something early 60s i always modify and and try to uh, simplify the method so then you know instead of doing vinyasas between both sides i do just you know between postures because i don't want to wear people down and uh, i try to what's this think, to think of what's essential it's the mm. breath it's that internal of uh, uh, observation and it's how you kind of build peace of mind and steadiness of mind in what you do you know the kind of, yeah, I, of young people they come in they are too ambitious they're too keen they're too driven by results and their personal agendas and they they miss the whole point and sometimes you have to like me i had to run wild for a couple of year before i was even ready to uh, mm. understand yoga you know that was certainly my own perspective uh, experience on it um what do you think about effort though i mean there's the the quality of tapas in the yoga uh, discipline the effort um the striving i mean it, does that not play a part as well i mean i like your idea of acceptance and i kind of agree um sometimes you can by pushing against rigidity you only create something which is worse um but then again isn't there something to do with the obstacles and the challenges and the and the struggle towards yeah. the goal i mean uh, i mean if you look at the commentary by vyasa on you know um on the yoga sutras you know like uh, the second chapter on sadhana pada uh, and he says you know tapasvadya yeshvara panidani kriya yoga he says tapasya vina yoga nasidyati like without effort nothing is ever accomplished in yoga without discipline you know you can argue okay what is tapas but ultimately mm. tapas means a form of discipline a form of encountering the the your your um, you know your experience of polarity uh, within discipline or effort we we can come to experiencing ourselves in a new way when the effort become rigid just because you you become obsessed about something it's going to backfire or give you trouble further on but when effort is done in a balanced way um then you know the effort that we do is the kind of first initial step to kind of produce some heat in the body so transformation can come about without effort nothing can ever really change and when we are like deeply coated in ignorance how can we ever step out of this layer of ignorance unless we we use a certain effort it's impossible i believe 
Mm, but the effort has to be quite subtle then because you can easily make, as I think we both did in our youth, the over effort and then you end up kind of only hurting yourself and kind of closing the door of yoga in a way, which is something to do yeah. with acceptance, isn't it? And humility. No, yeah, that, that's a very good point you mentioned there. Definitely. I mean, when this effort, like I said, become rigid, it hurts you and it harms you. Uh, but what, what, what I mean by effort is the the willingness to face yourself. The, uh, like mm. a, when an effort is driven by desire and ambition, it has nothing to do with yoga. But when an effort is done with a willingness to face, to look at all sides of your being, because tapas is really there to balance out the polar opposites of the good and bad, the likes and dislikes within us. So when we use effort as a tool to transcend, you know, the good and the bad, the likes and dislikes, etc., then a kind of new um, light of experience may shine forth. Obviously, isn't ta- tapas in a way then is maybe maybe tapas is the quality of, of honesty or trying to engender really honesty towards life. Well, tapas embodies, you know, everything that has to do uh, with, you know, uh, the, the bravery of, of uh, self-introspection. Mm. Of really, you know, the, the, the fundamental teachings of yoga, if we look at it, it, it's kind of how do we understand our own prakriti constitution? How can I see, you know, all the things within me that is changing and to really understand the subtle components of the sattvic, rajasic and tamasic principles within me and then eventually transcend that. And then what remains is the purity of of spirit, whatever you want to call it. And then naturally what happens is there's a diminishing of imbalances within our nature, within our mind, within prakriti. But for that to come about, you know, first we have to see ourselves fully and, and more clearly as we are rather than how we want to be or how we want to be perceived. And, 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 and that's, I think, is the beauty of, of tapas, that it's a kind of honest approach of, of um, inquiring, a, a kind of, you could say, inquiring with effort because everything that uh, needs to mm. if, if you got, if you want to like if you want to sharpen a knife you need a grindstone without the grindstone the knife will just remain blunt and it's the same with with our practice of yoga it's the sharpening of our own prakriti constitution and understanding our inherent quality more fully and developing that and then eventually letting go of that so when it comes to the physical practice that we do if if you if you're just doing like a kind of bodybuilder approach it's just for the physical asanas or for the form or for the you know the feel good factor that you you get after the practice that in, in the beginning, that kind of effort will, will, will wear you out or it will uh, disappoint you. But when an effort is done uh, seeking truth, seeking our internal support, seeking clarity, then we, we start uncovering something truly beautiful. Uh, but that, in essence, you know, that can be defined. It just happens to affect your physical, mental, emotional condition. And when it makes you more, you know, a, a more, you know, beautiful, harmonious, loving, kind person, then the things are working. If it makes you more rigid, arrogant, stiff, or, you know, uh, mentally depressed, then it is not working. We're doing so the effort done on the inside, but there's something to do with the quality of the effort, like kind of how we judge it on the outside as well. I mean, you're, you know, you do this work for uh, um, with the uh, back in the ring, you know, with people that have had a history of addictions. Does yoga have a kind of responsibility then to to translate on the outside of us after doing that in the internal work? But you know, the, the yoga 
is such a beautiful tool for transformation if we're willing to look at ourselves. But as long as we are looking outwards and we using yoga to become something ourselves, I mean, every young person wants to become rich and famous or beautiful. That's naturally within us. And if we use yoga in the same way, we may become very rich and beautiful or whatever, but eventually we will end up depressed. Because if you don't taste that inner sweetness of yoga and it becomes just like a, a fanciful word that we use to, of a kind of spiritual quest, yoga, when it's at its best, it harmonizes us it relaxes us and it makes us embrace life and feel, you know, um, harmony with life and people around us. Um, and what I wanted to say about back in the ring, I started simply as a personal uh, inquiry to see could yoga work for. Uh, former inmates and, and drug addicts. And when I moved back to Norway in 2010, I had a privilege, I have had the privilege of, I mean, I, I, I lived a good life, you know, and I, mm. um, I traveled many places in the world uh, because of yoga. And uh, I just felt I had a duty to give something back to society uh, and to, to investigate, could yoga have a positive effect because I felt the impact it had on myself. And uh, so I, I, I sort of some, started teaching in some few prisons. And then a few years later, I started this project called Back in the Ring, which is now uh, operating in 20 cities around Norway. We have yoga oh, programs wow. for people who have drug addiction. And of course, that was also a project by trial and error. Certain things I learned the hard way, certain things I did good, certain things I did not do so good, simply due to my own ignorance and ambition and try, wanting, trying to help people too much my way rather than help them experience it their own individual way. But what mm. I learned is like, like if yoga is used as a tool to help people to look at themselves and if they're willing to do the effort there is so many positive things that may come that will may break uh, negative patterns and what i tried uh, with back in the ring is just simply to develop healthy patterns that will help people uh, rediscover an uh, uh, inner essence that they somehow lost due to wrong turns in life with drugs, crime, mm. you know, negative behavior. And when that inner light is awakening people and they kind of um, reawake and to f they feel joy from within, uh, value from within, and a kind of integrity from within rather than identify with these negative patterns. So uh, there's an awakening of a giant in a way. And uh, for what, the what do you think it is about yoga that's made them, that, that's the fundamental thing that's helped with the addiction and the, you know, the kind of rehabilitation? Is there a quality? I, mean, I always kind of think it's like just the general daily routine that's the, the real kind of gift of yoga on a very practical level. But well, the beauty of yoga is that kind of it helps you. It helps you breathe, and when we receive the breath uh, in a deeper way inside of us, then then starts the process of uncovering, you know, uh, tension and strain, traumas and various suffering we uh, we have been subject to and that limits us. So. The, the most beautiful thing I feel yoga can do is to kind of connect people with a sense of beingness that is unconditioned by thought and patterns and various previous um, wrong identifications. And, and when a yoga practice uh, 
is good and it centers around bringing people home to themselves and helping people mm. experience the the simplicity of life there is a there's a joy that awakens in people and and when that when people feel that joy they realize hey the drugs that i take that my uh, you know uh, sneaky behaviors or trying to be tricky to make a quick fix of money that's never going to make me happy what makes me happier is like in a balance it's a kind of calm temperate mind it's like feeling a connectedness with this being when that beingness is switched on in individuals you see that there's a there's a new connection with life and i think that in itself uh, is is the beauty of yoga in work with people who have suffered drug addiction or been caught up in you know too much criminal activity because it can it can break those old patterns and it can reawake uh, a, a deeper quality of of beingness that helps them start to appreciate the simplicity of life and that real life is about feeling connected from within real yeah. life has nothing to do how much money you make uh, how other people look at you what kind of house you live in being present with the switched on then it's much easier to kind of deal with the kind of negative patterns that we we have uh, accumulated in our mind and body alex we're running out of time um it's been i mean it's a fascinating experiment and a, and a, and a really inspiring project um and i've seen it for a number of years and i've kept kept my my eye on it and i'm really really impressed and and uh, I'm pleased that that's happening um i must say that that like nothing have also humbled me more to to realizing that you know practicing one method um uh, and and be, you know one method doesn't work for all people and ultimately real yoga is never about the form but it's about kind of life itself and what i experienced with many of these drug addicts that i worked with that i realized sometimes i am the problem <laughs> i am the problem of my teachings that i try too hard instead of try to see them where where mm, they are mm. at teaching becomes an obstacle yeah and and and, mm. and 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 i must say that there's there's so much beauty in the world of yoga but sometimes us as yoga teachers get in the way when we mm. get wrong and we get so caught up in the things we do thinking it's the only way and the only method there is innumerable methods and ultimately yoga is about life itself and, and connecting with life and implementing the this very you could say essence of yoga into the things we do and when we're able to do that with with clarity and openness of mind and not resentment and rigidity then things become great everything we touch uh, turns into gold and we we experience that life and nature at least that's my experience everybody uh, deserves um prosperity and not in a stupefied sense like you know this modern new age thing but what i mean everybody wellness and prosperity and and a good life is there for for everybody to embrace and and um, be lifted up to but it's just but you know how what kind of eyes are we seeing with how how are we able to really embrace uh, how do i say it i mean like life wants to shape us all into you know um healthy um prosperous individual 
that sometimes we shrink from life and we hide from life because we don't we don't dare to fully embrace things. And, yeah, and that, there's like a that, quote in the Bhagavad Gita that um, don't let don't allow uh, life to shrink from you or don't shrink towards life either. Something like that, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, there's much to say about, about Bhagavad Gita, but ultimately it's like you, you don't run away from yeah. your difficulties and challenges. Face them with the inner balance and use yoga as a kind of tool to engage with life in a better way. Then great, great things happen to you. And uh, sorry to lighten the mood, but I wanted to kind of end on a on a lighter note with you. Uh, what do you do, um, you know, to embrace life outside uh, the literal practice of yoga? Um, what do you you talk about hiking well, in the mountains? Well, I'm practicing seven series now, you know. I have three oh, well, <laughs> kids at home. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like full on. And that's uh, trying to have a positive mindset, you know, despite the fact that you didn't get enough sleep and you sometimes you feel overworked and you're tired. But just trying to see the good in people and to recognize the suffering of people mm, and recognize mm, mm. the ignorance of everybody around mm. you and how we get kind of swallowed up in that ignorance and that ignorance eventually make us drown. Uh, and, and I'm just trying not to drown myself, basically. <laughs> I'm trying to stay afloat. That's what inspires me. So my kids inspire me. My wife inspires me. My work inspires me. And of course, you know, good literature inspires me, you know, a good film, good music, all of these things inspired me. That's, it's been a wonderful interview and um, I hope we can speak again soon, Alex. Thank you for joining. <laughs>